You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, a refreshing and captivating interview with top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They reveal some entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories, some you've never heard before. I'm George Hoffman, and please make sure you subscribe to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And don't forget the free TuneIn app. We're there, too. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is presented by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's hot dog on a Chicago landmark business since 1893. There is nothing like a Vienna hot dog or one of their Polish sausages. And their products are available coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and through Amazon. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is also sponsored by the Polina Market, Chicago's top purveyor of fine meats, poultry, fish, fresh frozen prepared foods, wine, beer, and now serving fresh sandwiches. They've been a staple in the city since 1949. This week, we feature the incomparable Bob Costas. Most of the era of the NBA on NBC, from the early 90s through 2002, I was the host. But there were three seasons where I did the play-by-play. That was the first of those three. Uh, and I just landed right in the middle of one of the most memorable sports stories in American history. It's almost impossible to quantify this gentleman's impact on the sports journalism landscape. From Barcelona to the United Center, from Sochi to Soldier Field, from Sydney to Wrigley Field, Bob Costas has been the voice and conscience of sports in our country for over 40 years. He's still quite active calling Major League Baseball and appearing on myriad shows just like this one. So, Bob Costas, tell me a story I don't know. Well, let's start with one, George, that's outside sports. When I did the late night show on NBC from the late 80s to the mid 90s, following first Johnny Carson, then Jay Leno, and throughout the whole thing, um, David Letterman was my lead in, which is ridiculous to say. <laughs> I was just kind of a little half hour puppet show at 1.30 Eastern time, 12.30 Central Time following those giants, but it was a well-received show. You may recall it, single guest for half an hour. Sometimes if they were worth it, either because of the body of their work or because of how interesting or entertaining they were, we'd tape even two or three in a single sit-down. And it was certainly an eclectic group. In a given week, you might have a serious interview with someone like Ellie Wiesel. You might have a sports interview with Hank Aaron, let's say. You might have Richard Lewis or Chris Rock or Jerry Seinfeld, or David Letterman, for that matter. And then it might be Smokey Robinson, or Carol King, or Bruce Springsteen, or something like that. That was kind of the range of what it was. And the only 
uh, criteria was the person had to have some sort of considerable body of work. So one night, Mary Lou Henner, who, as I understand it, is a native of Chicago, and the story I'm about to tell you took place in Chicago. Mary Lou Henner, fresh off taxi and other things which raised the level of her visibility and always a wonderful talk show guest. She's the guest on Later. And as you may know, she has this particular facility, the technical name for which escapes me, but the idea is she can recall the date and the day of the week that date fell on and what she was doing anytime you throw it out there. You could say September 2nd, 1964 mm -hmm. and she'd tell you she was in the second grade or whatever the case might have been and what they were doing that day and that it was a Tuesday and you could check it you couldn't check her personal recollection but absolutely she got the day of the week exactly right no matter how far back in history you went so I threw some out randomly and she was oh you know that was summer vacation and I went skating with my friend Sally blah 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 all of which was interesting enough but no one could actually check that. So I'm sitting there thinking to myself, what's a date where everybody remembers where they were and what they were doing? And it seemed like, this is before 9-11, it seemed like November 22nd, 1963 mm -hmm. was too dark to bring up in that context. So I said, how about July 20th, 1969, which of course is the day or night that men walked on the moon and most people of a certain age would certainly have remembered where they were and what they were doing at that time. So I say, July 20th, 1969. And she looks at me and she says, who told you this? Where were you when the men walked on the moon? Which was oh, what, June? was it June or July of 69? <laughs> who told you this? No, I, I just picked that at random. I swear to God, I just picked it at random. Come on, somebody told you this. I swear to God, I picked it at random. <laughs> then she begins twirling her hair with her index finger, an indication of some nervousness. She starts out and she says, well, uh, uh, well, wait a minute, who put you up to this? And this goes on like three or four times. Who put you up to this? Who told you this? And each time I had to reassure her, I just selected it at random. And then she says, okay, that's the night I lost my virginity. Now, there was no, there was no studio audience for later. But if you remember the old Tom Snyder Tomorrow Show sure and other shows like that, when you get a laugh from the crew, when the stage manager laughs and the audio person and the cameraman laugh, that's really an earned laugh. That's genuine. So the crew is laughing and you can hear it audibly. And she pauses for a second and I wait for the laugh to subside. And I say, well, one thing we know for sure, Neil Armstrong wasn't the guy. And then she sort of laughs nervously and without any further prompting she's still twirling her hair she's looking at me sheepishly i haven't uttered another question she says standing up in the shower and then i say well this is the sort of experience mary lou that i'm guessing even someone without this particular ability that you possess would likely remember for the rest <laughs> of their lives and then she she closes it out by saying who told you this yet again and i have to tell her yet again that, uh, that I just picked it at random. Subsequently, years later, she told me that more so than Taxi, more so than her other famous roles, 
the thing that strangers bring up to her, see her on a plane, see her in a restaurant, they will kiddingly say to her, where were you the night men walked on the moon? Oh, now, July 20th, 2019, 50th anniversary of that memorable event, meaning walking on the moon, but also memorable for Mary Lou, <laughs> I called her. I called her and I said, Mary Lou, happy 50th anniversary. <laughs> and she just laughed and she just loved it because she has a great sense of humor. She's, she is a great, great talk show guest. She's a great person to just hang around with. I saw her segment on 60 Minutes. She's like just maybe, what, 100 people in the world with her incredible memory. It's some superior ability to have total recall. It's really amazing. Yeah, yeah. There are, there are people who have that facility. They're a tiny fraction of 1% of the world's population. I saw the 60 Minutes thing, too. Later was funnier. <laughs> you know, I was thinking, when someone has traveled as much as you have to so many outposts around the world, is there somewhere you've never been you yearn to visit? You know, I've never been to New Zealand. I've been to Australia a few times, and here's what people say. Not Aussies themselves, but here's what people who have enjoyed their visits to Australia say if they've also been to New Zealand. If you liked Australia, you'd love New Zealand. Who knows? Kind of on the bucket list. There's still time. You know, a number of months ago, you appeared on someone's show or podcast, and when asked what you're doing these days, your response was bupkis, which in my dictionary means nothing, but that's not exactly accurate, Bob. If there's a podcast or a radio show, CNN, MLB, you name it, you're on it. But what I find most interesting is where you do your broadcast from, which is the kitchen. Now, most people are usually in their office in front of a bookcase, which has become somewhat trite. But there you are in the kitchen where one can easily make out a microwave and a refrigerator. So tell me a story I don't know. Why the kitchen? Here's, here's how it started out. Uh, in our house in California, most of the year, under normal circumstances, we're in New York. We happened to be at our California house when COVID hit, and it seemed like this was the best place to kind of tread water, all things considered. Uh, so we've just stayed here. And looking around the house, the best place to get a decent camera shot that had some depth, especially because we were three hours behind most of the outlets that would have asked for me to be on camera, um, you could get some sunlight coming in mm -hmm. from a window uh, at the other end of the kitchen that opens up toward the backyard. So before we had a more professional setup, just in the early days, and we're doing it off an iPad, not a real camera, that was the best place to get even light. Subsequently, both the Major League Baseball Network and CNN have sent me backdrops. So it's only when I'm doing charity things or the occasional drop-in that's not for CNN or MLBN that people get to see the kitchen uh, in the last few months. But CNN came in and put in a real setup with an actual camera and real lights. So now it's a bit more of a professional look. The CNN one has, you know, CNN logo and a little bit of a blue background. Uh, the baseball one, at my suggestion, if you've watched the baseball network, you know they have Studio 42 in honor of Jackie Robinson, Studio 3 for Babe Ruth, Studio 21 for Roberto Clemente. I suggested years ago they should have a Studio 24-7, which would indicate that 
They're on top of any baseball developments 24 hours a day, seven days a week. In case something breaks at 3 o'clock in the morning in a non-COVID situation, somebody would be there to report on that development. So they never acted upon that, but they did in this case. So they made a backdrop for me with the MLB logo, and it says Studio 24-7. And on one side, there's Willie Mays, number 24. And on the other, there's Mickey Mantle, number seven. So on MLBN, for the last few months, I come to you from Studio 24-7. But there are some people who have expressed regret that they're seeing less and less of my kitchen. To those people, I apologize. I personally like the kitchen. I like there the backdrop. Go. I would like to see you flip an egg or two. This is nice. Yeah, I could make you a virtual omelet next time. <laughs> Your connection to Chicago is really quite extensive, even more so than I knew. And it began here with a job that many don't remember or simply don't know about. You were the television voice of the Bulls, albeit for, I think it was 19 road games during the 79-80 season. So tell me a story I don't know about that experience. Well, Rod Thorne was then the general manager. A great guy, by the way. A wonderful guy. Terrific raconteur. Just a, a wonderful guy who came out of a different era in basketball, a huge star at West Virginia after uh, Jerry West was the gold standard there, goes on to play in the NBA, uh, coaches in both the NBA and the ABA. He was Kevin Lockery's assistant with the championship nets of Dr. J in the ABA. And then he became the coach of the Spirits of St. Louis for the second of their two years of existence. And I was their play-by-play man. So Rod and I became friends through that. Fast forward a few years. He's the Bulls GM. They need a television guy for the 79-80 season. I'm still at KMOX in St. Louis, but Rod reaches out to me. I say, sure, I I love basketball. Uh, I'd be happy to do it. And that also gave me the chance uh, to broadcast some games with Johnny Kerr, one of the greatest guys. You want to talk about a hail fellow, well-met, Anyone who knows anything about Chicago sports knows what a wonderful presence Red Kerr was. Greenwood, rather than Autry, moves into jump center. So it's Greenwood against Issel. They usually beat uh, Greenwood, uh, the rookie jumping center now. They usually beat him on a quick tip, and, of course, uh, Issel is a master at this. Watch him get it on the way up. Jim Capers will put the ball in the air, and Dan Issel is quite a master at getting the ball on the way up. Let's see who controls this one. Bounces to Issel himself. And he tosses it out to Bobby Wilkerson. Wilkerson to McGinnis. McGinnis on the move, picked up on a switch. Now, this team's best players, I remember, was Reggie Theus. Yep. And then John Mengelt was on that team. Young David Greenwood was on that mm-hmm. team. Um, there, and a few others. Was Artis Gilmore on that team? I can't remember. But I believe he was. It, you would think they would have done better, and they did somewhat better in their home games. But they were well under 500 for the season. We televised only road games, 20 of them. And the Bulls were 3-17 and 17 in those 20 road games. I missed one, and Eddie Doucette, the longtime voice of the Milwaukee Bucks, filled in for me. And wouldn't you know it, the Bulls did win that game. So <laughs> I was 2-17. I was and 17 It's not a good record. WGN tenure. And then right after that, I got hired full-time by NBC, and that was it, one season. Now, do, do you still have that, and, I, and I, I say this with all due respect, that hideous yellow blazer? And can I ask, who did your hair back then? Because there wasn't one single one out of place. Uh, no, it was, it was a long, you know, long sort of 
late seventies do. Um, (laughs) I, I either, either the credit or the blame goes to me and me alone. But, uh, for, for a guy who was 27 years old and looked like he was 15, that was an okay look in 1979. Uh, when it popped up on the last dance more recently, that got more comment than anything I actually said during that last dance (laughs) season. People are just fascinated by that. Here's one rule of television, all right? You could recite the Gettysburg Address backwards from memory, but if you were wearing glasses, people would comment on that. Or if for whatever reason you decided to wear a bow tie, they'd comment on that. Or, and I don't suggest you try this, have pink eye during the Olympics. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and people will comment on that, and I understand it. Some of it's good-natured, some of it's snarky, but it comes with the territory. No matter what else I did in a dozen Olympics, and I would like to think that some of it was pretty worthwhile, I'm sure that many people remember me primarily when it comes to the Olympics for that, because it's the visual thing or the superficial thing uh, that strikes them. So when that popped up again, you know, 30 years down the road, what, 40 years down the road, uh, in the summer of 2020, when it popped up again uh, during the last dance, you know, it got, it got a lot of good-natured commentary. I had to give the jacket back. I had to give the jacket back to W. Did you want to give the jacket back? Uh, yes, I did, as a matter of fact. <laughs> I was only too happy to part with it. Here's something I'm not sure many people know here as well. You actually did Bears broadcast with Johnny Morris, who, of course, was a longtime sportscaster at uh, CBS TV affiliate mm-hmm. here. And your first Super Bowl broadcast happened to be 1986, Super Bowl 20, when the then Mighty Bears demolished the Patriots. Yeah, that was my first as the host. Ahmad Rashad and Pete Axtelm on the set with me. Bill McAtee was one of the reporters. Larry King did some interviews. He interviewed Mike Ditka and Mike's wife uh, prior to the Super Bowl game. Uh, It was in New Orleans. And the Bears were just a a juggernaut. Maybe it's a different game. As it is now, this Bear juggernaut is completely clobbering a good football team, the New England Patriots, champions of the AFC. A look at some of the highlights. Walter Payton looks like he can begin getting sized for his Super Bowl ring in this is 11th year in the NFL. It was his fumble that set up the Tony Franklin field goal early. Kevin Butler matched that. If they had played that version of the Patriots 20 times, they would have beaten them 20 times. Uh, As you may remember, the Dolphins had played the Patriots in the AFC championship game. And the matchup everybody was anticipating in the Super Bowl was the Bears against Miami because the Dolphins were the only team that beat the Bears that year. Don Shula had a great plan. Dan Marino had a great game, and they beat them in a Monday night game. So everyone thought, probably correctly, that a Super Bowl between the Dolphins and the Bears would have been a lot more competitive, but it didn't happen. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is presented by Vienna Beef, Chicago's hot dog and a Chicago institution since 1893. If you've had a hot dog, chances are it was from Vienna. And did you know there are more locations selling Vienna in Chicago than McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's combined? There's nothing like biting into a juicy and delicious pure beef Vienna hot dog dragged through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and some celery salt, and oh, those Polish sausages dripping with flavor. 
and look for the new spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available in restaurants, grocery stores, and entertainment venues such as the ballparks, socks and cubs, stadiums, museums, and the zoos. Plus, you can purchase them online coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and Amazon. And remember, Vienna's not just hot dogs and sausages. Look for their farm makers' chili, mini bagel dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take it from a guy who was weaned on, then sold Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at ViennaBeef.com. The easiest way to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is to follow me on social media at George Offman. That's O-F-M-A-N-1-F on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you download your podcast. We return with Bob Costas on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. You have witnessed, as the famous Jim McKay once said, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. However, you have also seen the unexpected, but in the case of June 23rd, 1984 at Wrigley Field, the unexpected times two. Tell me a story I don't know about the Sandberg game, which I was at, and perhaps mm -hmm. what it was like to be in the booth for that historic and memorable game and something that happened after it. Yeah, I think most people listening to this know the particulars, and there's been so much rehashing of it, and I mean that in the best sense, documentaries about it uh, and conversation about it each time June 23rd comes up. It's perhaps the most famous regular season game, certainly one of the most famous regular season games in baseball history. And as I've said before, one of the key elements here is what the game of the week was in the 1980s. It really was the game of the week. You didn't have the proliferation of games on television that you do now or the streaming services and the internet and all the highlight shows hadn't taken hold. So this had the attention of a huge portion of the baseball public, including many baseball players, managers, whatever, who weren't going to play until that night. There may have been other games since, I'm sure there have been, that had the same kinds of ups and downs as that game. But that game had center stage, as much as a regular season game can have center stage nationally then you have the setting it's Wrigley Field and if they had been playing someone other than the Cardinals maybe it wouldn't have meant as much but it's the Cardinals friendly rivalry not a bitter rivalry for the most part like Red Sox Yankees or like the Dodgers and and Giants sometimes were but still a rivalry we know that there was a lot of red in the stands at Wrigley that day there's a lot of blue in the stands when the Cubs come to St. Louis so you had all the elements and then the game played out as it did with Ryan Sandberg hitting the two last-ditch homers off Bruce Souter, not just any reliever, but then the premier reliever in baseball. Okay, so now we get to the bottom of the 10th inning. Sandberg has tied the game with the first of his homers off Souter, tied at 9-9. At one point, the Cubs trailed 9-3. Ties at 9-9. Willie McGee, who almost has a footnote, hit for the cycle in that game, delivers an RBI double, and then scores an insurance run, what looked like an insurance run. So now the score is 11 to nine with two outs and nobody on in the bottom of the 10th. And Bob Dernier gets a walk on a 3-2 pitch. 
a 3-2 pitch that Daryl Porter didn't hold. And at the time, Tony Kubek, who is a very alert analyst, says if he'd held that ball, maybe Doug Harvey would have called it strike three, but his dropping it creates perhaps the illusion that it was ball instead of a strike. So on the 3-2 pitch, he draws the walk. And here comes Sandberg again. But, and here's the part of the story you don't know, George. People have said, some Chicago fans have said through the years, that I gave up on the Cubs because I started to read the credits. But here's the reason. There was a fight on Sports World. Marv Albert and Ferdy Pacheco were standing by in Panama, perhaps under the watchful eye of General Noriega, standing <laughs> by in Panama for a fight on Sports World, and they literally were holding the opening bell. The fighters were in the locker rooms for like 45 minutes because they weren't going to start the fight until the game was over. So now, with two outs in the bottom of the 10th, we were going to go with a hot switch to Panama. So I had to read the player of the game, which was sponsored, and I had to read the other credits quickly. Our game today was produced by Ken Edmondson, directed by Bucky Guntz. Mike Weissman is the executive producer of NBC Sports, coordinating producer of baseball, Harry Coyle. 1-1 pitch. And so we gave Willie McGee the player of the game, which at that moment he was. I got it in between pitches. It didn't overlap any of the action. And then Sandberg homers to tie the game. So we gave Sandberg complete credit. The Natural had just come out that summer, uh, the Robert Redford movie based on the Bernard Malamud book. And I said something like, this may be the real, the real life Roy Hobbs. Uh, if you submitted this as a movie script, they might throw it away as too implausible. And that game, and Sandberg says it himself, that game was what marked him as an MVP candidate, and he did win it. It's the signature game of his Hall of Fame career. Okay, now the game is over. And Dallas Green, who I liked very much uh, and did a great job uh, running the Cubs in that period of time and making them a contender. As we all know, Dallas was a passionate man. And he came storming into the press room after the Cubs had won the game in the 11th on a pinch hit by Dave Owen, the most, <laughs> the most memorable moment of his big league career. And he's very good natured about it. Uh, that he was kind of taken along for the ride, and then he provided the punctuation with the base hit that won the game. Dallas Green comes into the press room, and he says, they all gave up on us. NBC gave up on us. Costas <laughs> gave up on us. But we came back, and we won it, damn it, you know. And he, he was loud. You know, he had that John Wayne voice. Even his conversational voice could be heard in different area codes. Very you know? intimidating. <laughs> yeah, he was a, a big man. He was. He was intimidating, but I liked him a lot, and I understood the emotion of the moment, and, and I took it all as a positive, but that's the true story. You stayed very much in the limelight, Bob, because so many of us seek your expertise on a variety of topics, and with good reason, but the spotlight fell on you again for a different reason. Of course, that was the immensely popular Last Dance, the 10-part series on the Bulls' championship runs, which was aired by ESPN. You were thrust in the role of the play-by-play -play voice for the final series against Utah. And as it turned out, that final game of the Bulls, three-peats. So tell me a story I don't know. What that experience was like for you? Most, most of the era of the NBA on NBC, 
from the early 90s through 2002, I was the host. But there were three seasons where I did the play-by-play. That was the first of those three. Uh, and I just landed right in the middle of one of the most memorable sports stories in American history. And then to top it off, the last shot. The last shot Michael Jordan ever took as a Chicago Bull. You need to be mindful of, at least in, in my mind. In an epic moment, not every game, and for that matter, not every World Series, not every NBA championship kind of echoes down the corridors of time. Not everyone. They all mean something to that team and to that team's fan base. But there are a few that you just know are going to be talked about forever. And I think it's part of the play-by-play guy's job to be mindful of that and capture it in some way. Whereas it was Doug Collins' job and Isaiah Thomas's job to analyze what was going on in the game itself. So there was no way we would know or could know uh, how incredible that final sequence would be for Michael, making the two free throws, then making a driving layup, then stealing the ball from Carl Malone, bringing it up court himself, no one else touches it, making the winning shot, holding the pose, it was a movie, and you had 10 chances, 10 takes, you couldn't get it any better. It was almost as if he was posing for a statue. He said subsequently the reason he did it was that at age 35, he'd played a lot of grinding minutes all season long, all throughout the playoffs. In that game especially, Scottie Pippen uh, hobbled by a bad back, and his jump shot had come up short a lot in the fourth quarter. And we noted that during the game. And he just wanted to make sure he followed through so that the shot wouldn't come up short. But what it led to was this classic pose. 17 seconds from game seven or from championship number six. Jordan, open, Chicago with the lead. Timeout, Utah. 5.2 seconds left. Michael Jordan running on fumes with 45 points. What could be any better than that? On the other hand, the lead is one and the Jazz have the ball with 5.2 seconds left. If they score, they force a game seven, and that game seven is on their home floor. That could flip the entire script. So I felt like I had to be mindful in that moment of the story that was developing, but I couldn't say it definitively because you didn't know it was going to happen after the timeout. So I said something like, who knows what will unfold in the next several weeks, but that may have been the final shot Michael Jordan will ever take in the NBA. And if that's the last image of Michael Jordan, how magnificent is it? And luckily for me, our great director, Andy Rosenberg, and producer David Neal were right in sync with me. So when I said what I said, they had a beautiful slow motion shot from a different angle of Michael releasing the ball. And just as I said, how magnificent is it? And they get the credit for this. The ball swished through the net in slow motion. And that's the kind of thing that locks a moment in the minds of the viewers. Uh, We knew all season long that it was possible, maybe likely, that this was the last go-round. And what I hadn't remembered, George, until I watched The Last Dance, was that before game five, with the Bulls leading three games to one, and the game is in Chicago, I actually came on the air, and I'd forgotten completely about this, came on the air saying, 
if this is the last dance, it might as well be on their dance floor. But the Jazz foiled that plan, and back to the Delta Center they went for the Game 6 drama. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is presented by the Polina Market. And if you haven't been there, what are you waiting for? It's been Chicago's premier market for the finest meat since 1949, and it's only getting bigger and better. From the popular Wagyu steaks to their porterhouse and tomahawk selections, Polina leads the way, and you might just spend hours there perusing the frozen food section. Everything made fresh, including chicken pot pies, pulled pork, and a variety of meatloaves. You like brats? I love them, including their pork variety, which is so juicy and tasty on the grill. And now the Polina Market has seafood and sandwiches from the deli and wine and beer to match anything you buy. Plus, they expanded again, making the in-store experience even better, but you can still order online to pick up. Take my word for it, the Polina Market is as good as it gets and conveniently located at 3501 North Lincoln Avenue in Chicago. Check them out on their impressive website at polinamarket.com. Mention you found them through this podcast. You're listening to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know with Bob Costas. You know, the more I think about this, the more you've had a profound effect on Chicago sports history. You were part of arguably three of the most historic events. You were there for Super Bowl twenty then the Samper game, and of course the last dance and Jordan's last shot. Right place, right time, and you just hope you don't mess it up. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I recently interviewed a mutual friend of ours, Marv Albert, who is just a wonderful, wonderful human being for this podcast. The two of you have worked on countless broadcasts, but one of the most historic, if certainly not the most bizarre, was during the 1994 NBA Finals when O.J. Simpson became a worldwide story, if not a phenomenon. It was the now, of course, infamous Bronco chase. Marv is doing the play-by-play. You're the host. But your story that evening has several twists that who knows what would have happened if. So tell me a story I don't know about the call that never came and more. Yeah, well, the murders happened on a Sunday night. Uh, Now it's the following Friday. It's game five. The Rockets and the Knicks are tied two games apiece. Game five at Madison Square Garden. Something else to keep in mind for the context, just like as we mentioned earlier, the game of the week meant something different in 84, the Sandberg game. This is before most people had cell phones. This is before they were as connected as they are now. So people were aware uh, before they came to the game that night, they were aware that O.J. Simpson had been charged, but that the police were looking for him and they had classified him as a fugitive from justice. So they were aware of that, but they couldn't follow it moment by moment. As this played out, not only a lot of fans, but some members of the media came to my perch and they were peering over my shoulder to look at this bizarre split screen, the game on one side, And this slow motion chase down the 405 with OJ and AC Cowlings in the Bronco. So it was my job to kind of transition between Tom Brokaw, who was providing periodic updates from the studio down the street at 30 Rock, and Marv, who was calling the game. At the beginning, 
I came on the air before the game started and said, we're mindful of the O.J. Simpson situation, and we will keep you updated as developments warrant. Uh, meanwhile, you can't shortchange the game. There's a lot of emotion happening, and it's an important game. So it was a weird tightrope walk in terms of tone. We hope you will all understand that I speak for everyone at NBC Sports when I say that there are no words that could come close to expressing the depth of our feeling over this entire tragedy. But we also hope you will appreciate that we have no choice but to proceed for the time being with the coverage of the game. What I find out subsequently, that was Friday, the Knicks win the game, then on Sunday, Houston wins at home and it's 3-3 and game seven isn't until Wednesday. So I'm hanging around the hotel on Monday and the phone rings and it's a woman from Time Magazine, don't remember her name. And she said, we heard that O.J. Simpson called you from the Bronco on Friday night. And I say, honestly, I thought at the time, no, that didn't happen. She says, thank you, hangs up. The whole conversation lasts less than a minute. That's in June. Fast forward to November, and O.J. is in the L.A. County Jail. The trial doesn't start until January of 95. But his assistant had sent word to me that the next time I'm in LA, OJ would like to see me. So I happened to be in Los Angeles doing some interviews and I let them know that I was nearby. And another footnote, Robert Kardashian picks me up at the hotel, uh, part of OJ's defense team, mm -hmm. drives me to the LA County Jail. And we go in there and it's me, Kardashian, AC Cowlings on one side of the glass and OJ on the other side of the glass. And we're making small talk. And then at one point, a few minutes in, AC says, you know, we tried to call you from the Bronco. And then it clicks in my head, the lady from Time Magazine was onto something. And then Juice jumps in and says, yeah, they were dogging me, Bob. And that was one of his favorite expressions. They're dogging me. Anything time anything went wrong, even if it was just something silly, he would good naturedly say, they're dogging me. Well, I said, yeah, they, they really were, OJ. And, and I said, what did you want to talk about? And he said, well, you know, the press was being unfair to me. And he said, not so much about the case. They were saying I was a bad guy. Right? Take into account whatever you think his state of mind was there, wearing a blue prison jumpsuit and um, his ankle shackled to one of the legs of the chair while he talked to us and shook hands by matching palms up against the glass, whatever his state of mind was, he said they weren't being fair to me. And I thought if I could reach you um, and we could go on the air together, you could tell people that I was a better guy than the way I was being depicted. Now, what's going through my head is that, wow, if in fact somehow he had reached me and if we had been able to make that connection and put him on the air with the technology of 1994, that would have been an incredible television moment because I would have had to have asked him as delicately, I guess, as possible, but directly, did you do it? Mm -hmm. He would have said no. I, I imagine he would have said no. Or, okay, OJ, if you didn't do it, why would you run? You have the resources. You have some goodwill. You can make your case in court. These are not the actions of an innocent man. Why did you do what you did. And then whatever his answers were, then the next thing would have been to do what we've heard the police 
uh, policeman doing on some of the recordings, trying to kind of talk him down. Put the gun down, OJ. Surrender peacefully. Because when this is all playing out, we don't know that, in fact, there's not going to be any violence when he gets to his home in Brentwood. That was extraordinarily tense. We didn't know if there'd be gunplay. We didn't know what the heck would happen. Um, so it would have been my job to kind of walk the line between a friend trying to talk him out of doing something that might have been tragic, uh, but also a journalist in that moment asking the appropriate questions. But it never happened. Why? Because he called the studio in New York same studio where we did the NFL show that OJ had been a part of until a few months before was the studio from which we did NBA Showtime. But in the case of the NBA Finals, we did the show from the site. So he calls the studio. There's nobody there except a technical guy answers the phone. Hello, Studio 3B. Yeah, I need to speak to Bob Costas. He's not here. I have to speak to him right now. Well, he's not here. I need to speak to him. Who's calling? OJ Simpson. Yeah, right. Click. And the guy just hangs up on him thinking it's a prank. And that was that until November when OJ and AC explained to me what had happened. Now, let me tell you a story you don't know about Bob and I, and I'm pretty certain you are not going to remember this, Bob. But the first time we met was in St. Louis in 1976 when you were the voice of the ABA Spirit of St. Louis and I was a student sports director at Southern Illinois University. This was a game involving the Salukis and I think Missouri. And I was with the late Paul Lambert, who was the head coach at SIU. And we were introduced to you by none other than the legendary voice of the Cardinals, Jack Buck. Then we met again in 1980, only you were doing some work with the Sporting News. And I was a freelance reporter here who contributed to your show. The producer sent each reporter a weekly album of the show imagine an album that was 1980 boy have times changed yeah <laughs> now you can you can send almost anything via email or, or text or whatever other modality um so much easier but then kind of unwieldy an actual album so so instead of whatever was popular at that time instead of fleetwood mac or early springsteen you were listening to the sporting news report with bob costas so you're no longer with NBC, which you've already explained was an amicable split, but you are far from retired. So tell me a story perhaps neither of us knows, Bob, how you envision Bob Costas in his 70s. And let me preface this by saying I am not trying to move the hands of time any quicker. Yeah, well, it, it's coming. No, no, we, can't, we can't hold it off, that's, that's for sure. Uh, you know... I don't feel like there are any worlds to conquer. I just feel like I would like to do the things that I'm most interested in or that are most gratifying to me and do them as well as I can. I don't care about volume or even size of audience anymore. I care about whether it's a good fit for me. Um, just as one example pops to mind, I was channel surfing a few days ago and the Major League Baseball Network was showing Moneyball. And before it, they showed an hour-long sit-down uh, from 2011, the year the movie was released, with me, Brad Pitt, who played Billy Bean, Billy Bean himself, Jonah Hill, who played the Paul D. Podesta character, mm -hmm. and Michael Lewis, the terrific author who had written the book Moneyball. So it's an hour-long sit-down. 
I don't know what the initial audience for that was in 2011 or what the audience was for it a few nights ago, but I do know it was damn good. And watching that at this stage of my life, I get more gratification out of that than if you were to show me a given episode of Sunday Night Football for which the audience is and was enormous but I didn't feel, especially in the last several years, that with the exception of a few isolated moments, that that was distinctive to me in any way or that there was anything about it that stood out except for the size of the audience. So these days, if I can do a baseball game on MLBN and feel like it's close to my best, I don't know if I am quite as good now. You kind of lose a little bit of sharpness sometimes as, as the years go by. I don't know if I'm quite as good as I was in the 1990s, but uh, you know, in the old the country song, I'm not as good as I once was, but I'm as good once as I ever was. <laughs> I have individual games where, where I've, I've got my A game going, and I feel good about that. And I like doing um, commentaries when there's enough time to do a measured and nuanced job. And I especially like doing long-form interviews. And if I can do that uh, enough to keep me busy both in and out of sports over the next few years – I'll be very happy. But I've, I've had my turns at bat um, on the big stages more than I could ever have dreamt uh, when my career began. More than 99% of the people uh, who are lucky enough to make a living doing this. So uh, I don't have any burning desire to, to add uh, to that body of work. I leave it alone. It speaks for itself. You have your A game going today. I ask this final question to all my guests, Bob. If not for sports broadcasting and journalism, what would mm -hmm. you have been? Well, you know, I've thought about this occasionally. If I had been born pre-Marconi, pre-radio, pre-television, I might very well have wound up as a ward of the state or as the, as, as the town. <laughs> I wasn't as the expecting court, that. As the, court, as the court jester in old <laughs> England. Uh, people who know me say this with affection. I am very, I'm quite inept at things that 99% of the world can do at least adequately. I mean, you don't want me to even change a light bulb. <laughs> if I get a flat tire, I'm in deep, deep trouble. <laughs> so uh, my, mom, my mom used to say before I, uh, I leaned into sportscasting that I'd make a good lawyer. And she was thinking like in Perry Mason terms, courtroom drama terms, closing argument terms, because I was always a, a verbal kid. I don't know, luckily for me, except for a couple of summer jobs when I was still in my teens. Luckily for me, I've never had to do anything except this. So, so uh, I lucked out. Well, let me put it this way. I'm glad you picked this profession. Bob Costas, thank you so much for telling me a story I don't know. Thank you, George. My thanks to NBC Sports and WGN-TV for those fantastic highlights. And big time thanks to TJ Rees for his hard work and dedication in putting this podcast on the map. Also to Will Hatzel for some crafty editing, Titi Shinkin for her illustrious illustrations, and to Ken Schreiner for always being there. Also to our sponsors, the Polina Market. Visit them at polinamarket.com and to Vienna Beef, a Chicago institution since 1893. You can find them at viennabeef.com. Please join us for our next effort on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.